Hi, I'm Gail from Restoration Church here in Salina. And here at Restoration, we've been going through a series of messages called The People of the And. And last week, Rachel gave us a message on how we are people of, we are citizens of earth, but we are also citizens of heaven. And today, I'm going to address the topic of faith and science. The title of my message is that God likes science. Now, for myself growing up, um, I went to church and I learned all the Bible studies, the all the Bible stories, and I um, learned a lot about God's creation and um, how He created this world that we live in and all the wonderful things that He uh, created to go in it. Um, but at the same time, I went to school and I learned things that were being taught in the public system about science and some of the things that maybe don't always line up with what God's uh, word in the Bible tells us. And so I'm not really sure that um, I myself personally experience a tension of whether I should follow the Bible or follow science, but more of a confusion of how did that fit together and how does that all play out? Um, it is my personal belief that science is just proof of God's creation. But I'd like to talk a little bit about that and some things that I um, kind of help, that I feel help support that. Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1-27 says, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I believe that when God created us in our, in his image, that he made us, um, curious and, um, kind of seeking knowledge and just kind of wanting to know about life around us. Um, but I think that God did an amazing job of his creation. Psalms 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us to shut our eyes to the evidence and just believe. Rather, it encourages us to open our eyes and see the evidence of a glorious God. The fact is, God likes science. The word science comes from the Latin word scientienta, which means knowledge. In Genesis 2-9, we see, And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I mean, God likes knowledge so much, he created a tree about it. And since God likes knowledge, he absolutely likes science. So what does the Bible say about science or possibly even about scientists? Do you think there were scientists in the Bible? Well, in Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So we look at the word Magi, which a lot of translations use, and the definition of Magi is magician or having supernatural powers. But there are a lot of translations that use the words wise men. 
which wise is having information, being informed, or showing good judgment. Personally, I think that these wise men were scientists and astronomers. I think that these men studied and knew the scriptures, and they were full of and they were men of faith using science to verify their theories and their beliefs. Now, I do think that they possibly were referred to as magi because sometimes I feel like when when people don't understand something, they tend to label it as something that's maybe mystical or magical. But I believe that these men were men of faith. So what do you think? Do you think those magi were magicians? Or do you think they possibly could have been astronomers and scientists? So who are some of the scientists of today? Well, I want to go through a series of um, some names and some scientists and what they did. And the thing about this is that as this progressed, the next person, the next scientist in line used the information from the scientists before them to to proclaim new knowledge, to come up with new theories, to come up with new hypotheses. So in 335 BC, we have Aristotle. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher, but Aristotle believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And that is what he taught. Aristotle had schools. He was a great teacher. But this is what he taught, that earth was the center of the earth, of the universe. And then in 130 AD, we have a scientist, or actually a Roman citizen, called Ptolemy. Now, Ptolemy actually created a model off of Aristotle's belief with the earth as the center of the universe. And then this was used as a teaching tool to teach people about our universe. But in the 1500s, scientists and astronomers started to question the earth as being the center of the universe. Because in their studies and what they discovered, the sun did not orbit around the earth. In 1543, Copernicus, who was a Polish priest, he wrote an explanation about how the planets, about how the planets move, requires the sun to be the center of the universe. So as he studied all of the planets and how they were moving um, in in our solar system, he realized that the sun was the center of the universe and not the earth. And and after he um, passed on, he his information went to a scientist called um, Brahe, who was a Danish astronomer, and he did more recording of planetary movement and um, studying all of that. And then in the 1600s, we have a German mathematician and astronomer called Kepler, and he his discovery was that all of these planets were not necessarily moving in a circular pattern, but in more of an oval pattern in their orbit. And so he was bringing more information and more um, enlightenment to that. And then in the 1600s, we also had Galileo, who was an Italian astronomer, and he made great improvements to the telescope. And so as we see, each one of these scientists took the information from the one before them and added on to that as they discovered more and more. So it's not like you have to reinvent the wheel each time. You just get more and more information. Now, I find it incredibly interesting that all of these scientists here who are well-known for their discoveries 
are all from different nationalities. I mean, they're from different places, and yet they shared that information, and they built upon that. And another thing that I found very interesting, that we went from 335 B.C. with Aristotle declaring that the earth was the center of the universe to in the 1600s, the Catholic Church actually warned Galileo to stop insisting that the sun was the center of the universe because their church teachings had always been that earth was the center of the universe. So I just find that very interesting. But as a people, how do we find a balance between faith and science? Romans 1, 19, 20 tells us what may be known about God is plain to them because he has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. In his study of Nobel Prizes awarded during the 20th century, Baroque Chavel found that 73% of chemistry winners 65% of physics winners, and 62% of medicine winners were Christians. So to me, that shows that faith and science can go together. And that list of scientists that I mentioned earlier, I know um, through my research that Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo were all Christians as well. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Scientists study very tangible things. They investigate the things around them and then come up with theories and try to explain them. But believe it or not, science and faith are not mutually exclusive. Now some people think that they should be and think science alone can explain everything. And the reality is that science explains a lot. Science measures the world and tells us how it works. Science creates solution. I mean, just look at the progress that has been made in medicine and technology. But there are a lot of questions that science can't answer. And I think that's where those of us who believe in our creator God come in. Science may tell us the what and how, but faith tells us who and why. So my another question to you is, do you think you can believe in science and still have faith in God, our creator? And think about what experiences that you've had that have led you to that thought. Why does this matter to us? There are just some things science can't explain. Does that mean we shouldn't trust science? I believe that science gives us a deeper understanding of God and his great design. And I would like to share some things I find fascinating and I believe prove that God is a master creator. I have these facts because scientists have studied them, and yet some of them they cannot explain. Welcome to my world of insects. Insects have been way ahead of humans in many things. They were the first to fly and use solar navigation, finding their way by the sun. They constructed homes out of wood, clay, and earth long before humans did. They kept gardens and livestock and cultivated crops. They sewed, made paper, landscaped the ground around their homes, and used air conditioning. They set up communication systems, divided their workload, and built nurseries. 
They also formed armies, went to war, and kept slaves. And what I find so amazing about all of this is that's all instinctual. No one taught them how to do it. It wasn't learned behavior. It's just inside of them, and they do it. So I want to share with you about some more insects that I think are absolutely amazing. So in Proverbs, there's a couple of different times that the scriptures talk about ants. But did you know, in proportion to their size, ants have the largest brain of any animal in the animal kingdom, and they can carry 50 times their own body weight. It's no wonder that God um, referenced them when he was talking about work ethics and taking care of things. If a human could imitate a flea in proportion to its body size, he could do a standing broad jump of a quarter of a mile. A firefly produces a chemical light that has so little heat, it is called cold light. It is incredibly efficient, and scientists have yet to be able to reproduce it. And also, they cannot explain how a whole field of fireflies can light up at the same time. There is a particular wasp called a gall wasp that is the only insect that can pollinate a fig tree. If it were not for this wasp, the fig tree would not be able to bear fruit. And we have lots of other pollinators in the insect world, but this is the only one that can pollinate this fig tree because of how that flower is formed, it takes this very small, tiny wasp to get in, down inside of the flower to get that pollen. Another interesting fact is that humans have never been able to make honey. Only a bee can make it, and the process is still a mystery. And for centuries, people believed that the largest member of a beehive was a king bee, and it was not until 1609 that scientists discovered that the dominant bee was a queen bee. Now, one of the most fascinating creatures in the insect world to me is the monarch butterfly. And I would like to share two things with you about this monarch, about the monarch butterfly that to me prove that they are just part of God's design because science really can't explain how and why the things happen that do. So I first would like to talk about the, the life cycle of the butterfly. So, of course, the life cycle starts out as the egg when the female butterfly lays an egg. The egg hatches and becomes a caterpillar. And as we all know from the hungry, hungry caterpillar story, that the caterpillar eats and eats and eats and eats until it decides to, in the case of a monarch butterfly, make a chrysalis. Now, if you've ever seen a monarch butterfly chrysalis, it's absolutely beautiful. It's an amazing color of green with this gold band around the top of it. And that is characteristic only to the monarch butterfly. But what happens is that fat, juicy, chubby caterpillar creates this chrysalis around its body, which that in itself is so amazing because if you saw the size of the caterpillar's body, and then the size of that chrysalis, when it's done, it's almost half the size when it's done making it. But while it is inside of that chrysalis, that caterpillar's body completely liquefies. 
Everything in it completely breaks down into a liquid. And I personally know that because I have a son who is an entomologist. So as he was growing up, we have um, had lots of science experiments on our kitchen counter, and we have hatched out a lot of different butterflies and moths and taken care of a lot of insects. But one time when we were um, trying to hatch out a monarch butterfly, in that larva stage, as it was hanging there on the branch, um, it died. And the next day when we saw that, there was all this liquid seeping out of that chrysalis because it had died in there. And so I do know that it completely liquefies at that point in the, in the um, life cycle. But what's so amazing is that then from that liquid, it starts to transform into this beautiful butterfly that you see. And all of that comes together and this butterfly is created inside of that little itty bitty chrysalis. And the other really amazing thing, if you've ever had the opportunity to watch this, it is so cool, is that beautiful green outside of that chrysalis becomes completely transparent and clear. And what you see inside of there is all the markings of that monarch butterfly, that orange and black, and it's so amazing. And then when it's time, the butterfly breaks open the chrysalis, it comes out, it dries out its wings, and it is ready to fly away. Now, I've yet to figure out or have any scientists explain to me exactly why we go from that caterpillar to liquid to a beautiful butterfly. Now, my son, the entomologist, will tell me that all of the DNA and all the components that it needs to make that butterfly are already in the caterpillar. I get that. I just don't understand how that happens. But personally, I think that's one of the amazing miracles of God. So not only does this monarch butterfly have an amazing life cycle, but it has this incredible migration that it does every year. So this migration starts in the center of Mexico, where all these monarch butterflies have been nesting in these trees. And they take off in early spring, and they head north. And so they fly through Mexico and up to the lower part of the United States, around Texas, Louisiana, and that part of the United States. And the butterflies mate, they lay their eggs, the adults die off. And the eggs hatch. We go through the whole life cycle, the caterpillars. They make the chrysalis, become the butterflies. And we have a second generation of butterflies. And they fly on up into the United States and get to, um, that's about the time we start seeing them here in Kansas, which is about um, April, May, maybe sometimes even in June. But kind of in that time of year, we start seeing monarchs come through Kansas as they are headed, headed north. And so this second generation lands about in the, the center part of the United States and goes through the whole life cycle again. Now we have a third generation that fly as far north as many of them go on up into Canada. And we go through the life cycle again. And all of this process, each life cycle takes somewhere between four and six weeks. Mm, kind of depends. But so... This process from when they've left Mexico to get up into Canada has taken them anywhere from three to four months for this to happen. So then they are up in Canada, up in the north, and we go through the, another life cycle. And now we have a fourth generation. 
But this is where I find it so fascinating. This fourth generation of monarch butterflies now fly from Canada all of the way back to Mexico. So they take flight and they head back into Mexico to those trees where they spend their winter. So in Kansas, we see the butterflies in late spring and around May, and then we see them again in the early fall around September and maybe a little bit into October, but we start seeing them come back as they're headed south again. But to me, the most amazing thing about this is that through that whole process, that fourth generation lives almost nine months. And I have yet to have any scientist or anybody explain to me how that happens. Why do those first two, three generations only get to live four to six weeks, and yet that last one lives almost nine months as it goes all the way back down to Mexico, spends the winter in those trees, and then flies back into the southern part of the United States. I don't know. To me, that is just part of proof of God's great design and how he created this incredible world that we live in. So my big takeaway from this is, Do you have to choose to be either scientific or spiritual? I believe that the scientific and spiritual aren't mutually exclusive. Our faith is not blind, but supported by powerful facts. I believe you can study science while holding on to God, to his son, and the Christian faith. I believe God's mysteries are just the motivation for the scientific community to continue its quest of understanding our world. So again, Romans 1, 19 and 20 tells us what may may be known about God is plain to them because he has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. God is there. God is everywhere. You just have to look for him.